Welcome to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life, and leadership. The goal to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 17 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I am your host, and I hope that our conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact with your life. Today, we are doing things a little bit differently. In this episode, I am sharing some of my own research and questions that I have been asking since my conversation with Dr. Shane Wood in episode 13 on my strange Bible. After Shane and I's conversation, I have had a ton of questions and have really grown curious about the topic of apocalyptic literature. And so I decided to try to put pen to paper and read a ton and ask a bunch of questions that I hope you will find helpful. Questions like, Why is this such a taboo topic? I mean, why do Christians and churches neglect apocalyptic topics? And where does it come from? And why do, what do people actually believe about it? And why in the world did God even speak apocalyptically? So to keep this intro short so you don't have to listen to my voice uh, too much longer, let's dive into the rise and fall of apocalypse in America. Welcome to episode number 17, where we are having a follow-up conversation about apocalyptic literature. In episode 13, I had a conversation with my former professor, Shane Wood, on apocalyptic literature, where he helped us understand what it is and is not, along with its purpose. Well, since that conversation, I have been following rabbit trail after rabbit trail on apocalyptic literature. And so today is me sharing with you the insights and the questions that I have been asking along the way. And I hope that this helps. But when I say the word apocalypse, what is the first thing that you think of? Well, if you're like most people, you think of the end of the world, right? Doomsday, Armageddon. (laughs) Why? Well, for one, Hollywood, right? I mean, this word has created a whole sector of writings and movies and plays. And for some reason, people are fascinated with the end of the world. And so stories are written about what a world would look like after a nuclear bombing, total government control, or the walking dead. The second reason most people think of the end of the world is because of preachers. Thomas Long, uh, he writes in one of his books on the rise and the fall of apocalyptic preaching in America. And he notes that in the 19th century, most churches preached openly and frequently on apocalyptic texts and topics such as heaven and hell and Christ's second coming reign and final judgment. But then in the 20th century, embarrassment begins to shroud the pulpits in many American churches, and and those topics were scarcely, if ever, talked about. And how how did such a thing take place? I mean, how did churches go from these bold proclaimers to embarrassed harbingers? Well, it's simple. Churches bought into what Thomas calls a fragile view, a fragile view of the apocalyptic messages of the Bible. I mean, it wasn't equipped to handle the cultural changes coming into the 20th century. In the mid-19th century, Christians held a very optimistic um, a very optimistic view of the message of the Bible, and it fit hand in glove with the social theory of an enlightened society, in essence, 
They saw the church as working to make society better until Christ um, would come and bring his kingdom in full. In other words, things are going to get better before the return of Christ. And this fit well with what many people already believed in America, Christian or not. I mean, this was the land of the free, the new world. I mean, how could this not be a sign of forward progress? So how could things shift so quickly to change the emphasis? Well, Thomas explained that this optimistic view of the end rested on a three-legged stool of assumption that fell completely apart. The first was a naive and a literalistic view of the Bible. The second was that Christianity shared no commonality with any uh, world religion. And third, it was a proud, it had a proud view of humanity. Uh, that they had a superior rational and morality um, that would create the right environment for God's kingdom to come in its full. And then in the 20th century, you had German higher criticism that took root in American soil. The goal of higher criticism was to understand the Bible according to its historical and literary features, separated from the religious uh, and dogmatic opinions of the day, the focus was primarily on the origin and production of the books that we have in the Bible. And this wasn't an entirely bad endeavor. I mean, we have profited in so many ways from this um, research. The problem was it became the method of interpreting the Bible. And so um, um, and some of the early pioneers of this study, they were not favorable toward Christianity. And so if you were preaching a, a, I guess, a hyper-literal approach to the Bible, but you were ignorant of the actual history and the literary approaches to the Bible, you kind of looked silly. I mean, you kind of looked ignorant of what the Bible, uh, what Bible teachers of the day, authoritative Bible teachers in the university were saying, and it just it cut off that first leg. The second development that took place was a was the comparative study of world religions. And so there was a great and intentional effort to look and to develop a comprehensive understanding between all religions. And so many of, and, and many have grouped Christianity in with the rest of the world religions, making many Christians um, feel like there was nothing really unique. And so it began to saw off the second leg. And let me go on record and say Christianity is very unique. Because no religion says that God became a man to die on a cross to save sinful humans. Pretty much all religions teach some way for us to be good enough to get in heaven or some kind of nirvana. Christianity says no, nobody is good enough to save ourselves. Therefore, we need a savior. And God came to be that savior. I mean, that, that is totally different. The third movement was um, Darwinism which provided a completely new way to understand human origins separated from the Judeo-Christian teaching in the Bible. And so now you have an alternative explanation to truth, to origins, to purpose, separated from the biblical worldview. And just like that, right, and that just kind of saw off the third leg, and, and just like that, when those three cultural movements hit, the apocalyptic presence in many churches came down with a crash. I mean, this made commonplace optimistic preaching look unenlightened. And, and so it embarrassed mainstream preaching of the final days and it grew deathly silent. And in its place rose this emphasis on human progress. 
Now it wasn't so much about preaching uh, for the life to come, but for the life now. Uh, from your best life is yet to come to your best life is here and now, right? Here's five ways to be a better husband, a better wife, a better boss, a better child. And the preaching of the previous generation soon began to get viewed as naive, irrelevant, unsophisticated. The progress-centered messages by and large replaced the apocalyptic-centered messages, and it didn't help that you had um, cults like the Jonestown and the Branch um, Davidens um, that used apocalyptic messages in the Bible for destructive means. I mean, this only added to the general popula- population suspicion <laughs> toward Christians. And, and it made preachers feel more embarrassed. And thus, you have in a matter of a century silence over the apocalyptic teachings in the Bible. All because, according to Thomas Long and other historians, their view of the apocalypse in the Bible was based on a fragile and literalistic interpretation and a view of history that was about to be shaken to its core. And so contrary to how apocalyptic scriptures have and have not been handled, what do we actually know about apocalyptic literature? Well, for starters, this term that came to categorize this genre of literature originally um, comes from the first word in the book of Revelation, right? Apocalypsis, uh, which is where we get our modern word apocalypse. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the English word apocalypse is a transliteration from the Greek. And the word that is um, typically translated is revelation. And so for many years, the book of Revelation has become the litmus test for this literature. And, and so beginning in the 19th century, this became the title um, for this writing style and it bear, and the writing styles that bear similarities with the book of Revelation. That does not mean that um, the 19th century invented this kind of literature, right? Far from that, right? This literature we call apocalyptic, it existed for roughly um, 700 years. Uh, from the period of the Babylonian exile, uh, 586 uh, uh, BC, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 135 AD. What is important to know is that this writing style that we have in our Bibles is unique to the Jewish and Christian worldview. And it flourished for a period of approximately 700 years. And although you can find literature outside of the Bible, outside of, outside of you know, the Jewish um, Christian faith that had symbolic writing uh, like what we have in the Bible, it, the apocalyptic message in the Bible was a unique genre for Jews and Christians. And then, um, and then toward the end of the second century, a heretic, um, a heretical movement, a uh, heretical Christian movement known as the Montanists, and this group um, <clears throat> leaned heavily, they leaned heavily upon the Gospel of John and Revelation to justify a teaching <laughs> that produced new prophecies and new revelations, and they claimed that they had greater authority than Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And so from this point onward, the book of Revelation was seen with great suspicion and it was neglected throughout much of church history. In fact, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he was so um, weary of, of this of the book of Revelation that when he translated it in his Bible, he put it to he put it to the end of it, right? But not as we have it, but in the appendix of his Bible. 
And so while revelation is God's word and it is received and preserved in all of the Christian canons, and even though it was used and taught from, historically speaking, the majority of people seem to have avoided it because it was unusual, it was mysterious, and it was widely misused. I mean, this prevailed um, for much of history. And then those who did use it, they, they had a, um, a hyper-literalistic approach that did not have much knowledge or regard for this kind of writing style. And as a result, this thing that we call apocalyptic literature was put on the shelf to collect dust and not given much serious consideration until really the last 100 years. And so in the midst of neglect and disregard among theologians and preachers and others, um, we see a a book like Revelation and other apocalyptic literature just kind of um, taking up shelf space. But a movement was beginning to form that had a greater interest in it. And and so riding on the wave of this movement was a New Testament scholar named uh, Ernst uh, Kaseman. I think I pronounced that right. Um, those who, who know him um, or know of his writings may um, correct me on that. But in 1959, he said in one of his books that apocalyptic is the mother of Christian theology. And by that, he meant that the very ministry and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament um, is not divorced from this worldview, but it came up right out, right out of it which was like earth shattering. I mean, given the neglect and the de-emphasis that was going on, I mean, this statement and others like it, it just catapulted this literature back into the academic world. And thus there was this resurgence or a, a revival to study apocalyptic literature afresh. And out of this renewed interest, an organization known as the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL for short, underwent a task to survey and come up with a broad definition um, for this neglected literature um, with a scholar by the name of John Con- as the kind of chairman of this study, which leads us to two important questions to ask. One, what is the meaning of this word apocalypse? And two, what is apocalyptic literature? First, what does this word mean? Well, if you look it up in the dictionary, you are bound to find the emphasis on the uh, end of the world, right? Dictionary.com defines this word like this. The complete and final uh, destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation or uh, an event involving uh, destruction or damage on the awesome and catastrophic scale. (laughs) The Greek word, on the other hand, uh, for apocalypse simply means to disclose, to reveal, to make known, (laughs) Which should immediately alert us that this is more than, um, this is, this is more about revealing something, uh, than it is about this catastrophic end of the world event. The problem is the popular notions are not what the Bible first thinks of when it uses this word. In the Bible, apocalypse is when somebody on earth is allowed to see hidden things from a heavenly perspective. Picture it as the curtains of a play being pulled open, right? The pulling back of the curtain um, is a revealing of the actors on the stage. It reveals um, those that were hidden. 
And in a similar way, this is what apocalyptic literature does. It is the pulling back of a curtain on the heavenly dimension so we can see things from God's point of view or so that we can see truth that has been previously hidden. So first thing is to recognize is that it is often how people often approach this word is different than the assumptions of what we have in the Bible. It's not about describing the end of the world, but revealing hidden things. The end of the world may be depicted in it, but that is not um, the entirety of it. A good example of this is how Jesus uses word in his prayer in Matthew chapter 11. It, it reads like this. It says this. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed or apocalypsed, um, apocalypsed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over uh, to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone uh, to whom the Son chooses to apocalypse him. What is Jesus' apocalypse here? Is that he is the Son who apocalypses, who reveals the Father. In many ways, um, that's what the Gospels do. They reveal God and God's kingdom to us through the person of Jesus. And I say all of that to say that when we come to this unique literature of apocalyptic, most of us need to make a switch before we even begin reading. We need to take this, we need to switch off this mindset that says, this is about the end of the world, therefore I must predict things. Two, this is God revealing something hidden. And it could be the end but it could also be God revealing what is actually taking place behind the scenes of history from a supernatural lens. And it could also be a new and a fresh way to see God. So what is this thing that we call apocalyptic literature? Because let's be honest. Yes, right? Jesus' apocalypse is he reveals God to us in the Gospels. But the way the Gospels read and the way that the book of Revelation read are very different. I mean, for example, um, one has dragons trying to eat a woman. I mean, what's up with that, right? Well, the definition that the vast majority of scholars and people agree with comes from what the SBL produced. And I'll put the actual definition uh, in the show notes in our podcast. Um, but because that this is a... Um, there's a lot crammed in here, uh, into this phrase. Let me just go ahead and give you um, my paraphrase of what apocalyptic literature is. Apocalyptic literature is a writing style that reveals hidden truth in story form, revealing future salvation and the supernatural world to humans by a heavenly messenger. As you can imagine, I mean, that's a mouthful. The definition that the SBL team uh, put out is concise and it's broad enough to encompass all of the writings inside and outside of the Bible. And I in no way am trying to kind of trump their definition. I just, for the sake of time and um, simplicity, am just um, paraphrasing that for us. 
uh, as this definition gets worked out further, um, there is discussion about what makes this literature unique, the worldview that we see presented in it, and the various themes that kind of emerge out from it. And so when we look at the different writings in the Jewish and Christian uh, world, uh, from this definition, it opens up the conversation to understand this more. Now we are not just talking about two books in our Bible, right? Daniel and Revelation, but a whole host of other parts of the Bible where these apocalypses take place um, in the themes and the worldview that are reflected throughout. And I'll link to some of the commonly agreed upon apocalyptic passages that we have in our Bible uh, in our show notes. But as scholars have researched them, they have found, get this, 28 different um, kinds of features, kinds of themes that have emerged or that kind of characterize apocalyptic literature. So for the sake of time and simplicity, let me give you five of the themes. Dualism, symbolism, narrative, cosmic end, and future um, salvation, dualism. One of the first things you'll notice is um, if you read like Daniel or Revelation or some of the other kind of apocalypses in the Bible is a strong dualism, which dualism is categorizing things into two uh, into two opposites, right? Um, this is not to be confused with the heretical dualism often referred to um, as Gnosticism that we find later within the, uh, the century of the church. But the dualism in the apocalyptic um, literature is breaking people um, and angels into two categories, right? Righteous and unrighteous. Uh, holy and unholy, godly, ungodly, good and evil. Uh, there is no middle category, right? There is no room for lukewarm. You are either for God or you are against God. And your fate in the next life is determined by um, what you do and who you belong to in this life. Another feature of this dualism is the placement of uh, angelic and demonic forces that are working behind the scenes of the events on earth. The Another prominent feature that we have is the use of symbols, um, <clears throat> the use of symbols, right? So it, it could be the use of animals, horns, wings, um, stars, um, candlesticks, trumpets, bowls, and, you know, on it goes. What is clear is that the symbols are standing for something other than the actual image. What is less clear <laughs> is knowing what those symbols stand for. I mean, they made complete sense to the original readers, but uh, to us, it's not as clear. I mean, this doesn't mean that we can't know what certain things represent. Sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. We need humility and we need caution when we are trying to figure out what these symbols um, are about. But what is often noticed, um, noted by Bible scholars is that the symbols, they are not used as kind of these um poetic words, but they are powerful in that they are meant to make people feel the truth at a deeper part of their being. It's kind of like love, for example. I can communicate um, love to my family uh, in, in many ways in, uh, by telling them that I, I love them, and, and they would know that that's true. But there are times where communicating that requires more than just words uh, sometimes when I go for a walk and with with my family, um, I'll pick a purple flower um, uh, from the grass and I'll surprise my daughter and I and I'll give that to her. And you know uh, she loves flowers and she loves the col color purple, and it, she knows that this is an expression of my love for her. 
Or how about this? When it comes to my anniversary and my wife walks into the kitchen, um, every once in a while, I'll put a bouquet of baby breath flowers on the kitchen table. And she knows that this is a symbol of my love for her. How? Well, because those were the flowers that we chose for our wedding. And so she knows that this is a symbol of our love. This is a symbol of our, our uh, commitment, our wedding. We choose the symbols in order to communicate a deeper level of truth that we want people to understand at a deeper part of their being. We want people to feel these truths, to live in these truths, to dive deeper than these surface level meanings. And this is kind of how the symbols of apocalyptic literature works. They are driving home something so that we as the readers can feel something, that we can take in these truths to the deepest part of who we are. Uh, Another common um, feature is that these um, these uh, apocalyptic um, uh, writing styles is 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 given in a narrative form, um, story form, right? Um, these are there's character, there's plots, there's settings, there's conflict, there's conclusion. Um, what makes apocalypse different is that there is more than just the story part. So it's kind of like this um, hybrid, right? Um, There's all kinds of writing styles um, that merge into this kind of literature. Plus, um, you have um, some stories that are told um, through symbols. Other times it is narrated as real world experiences. Another feature of apocalypses is they have a very pessimistic view of the end of of the world. Right, life on Earth is um, beyond repair. It's totally gone. The only solution is just complete and total destruction and replacing it with a new world, the kingdom of God. Right, and so images of earthquakes, of, of fighting, of stars falling, of the moon turning um, of red, of fire and sulfur destruction. Right, the old world comes to this cataclysmic end, and a new world comes in its place. I mean, this new world is pictured as being restored to this Eden-like place where all of creation is restored as wickedness and the wicked are condemned. Coupled with this is a picture of future salvation, which is not human spirits flying around in the clouds, but restored humans who never fall prey to cruel and evil systems and evil kings nor do they experience the corruptible um, character of a fallen world, things like sickness and death and sin and mourning. The theme that often emerges is a restoration of a garden of Eden-like um, condition, like place, where God is with his people and his people are with him. The righteous are restored, they are vindicated, and they are resurrected in the evil. The unrighteous, they are swept off to judgment. As God's judgment, as God's justice is fully and finally established on earth. Now, like those are just a few of the themes that emerge out of this writing style. But what makes all of this complicated is that not every um, theme appears in all of the apocalyptic passages in the Bible. All right, those are the f- uh, those five appear most often. But not every feature shows up as one would like or expect. And so pinning down a kind of like a bullet point checklist of identifying what is and is not apocalyptic scripture, um, it varies and it's difficult. In many ways, each apocalypse is unique and it's not like the other. But at the same time, they share a similarity that is just unmistakable. Think of this like you would a very large family. 
Each kid in the family looks, acts, and has a has his or her own unique personality. But yet, there is a family resemblance that is absolutely unmistakable. You know that those kids are all related, even if they have differences between them. And that's how it is with this genre. And so in spite of the themes and the similarities and the differences... Why in the world do we have this kind of writing style in the Bible? I mean, what is its purpose? For many um, surface level readings, you'd think it was kind of this code for us to decode and predict the end of the world, whether that's going to be bad or good or a combination of the two. The first thing that we see uh, of this writing style, we see it emerge in the 6th century, uh, 6th century BC, when the Jews were taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. They are robbed of their national independence, and they are exposed to a new culture. Um, This is recounted in the book of Daniel. This writing um, was um, pretty... uh, uh, was pretty extensive in the second century BC uh, when the Greek Empire was um, taking control. And so the first thing that we learn about the setting of where this writing grew up out of was in a period of crisis. And, and scholars have found some kind of real or perceived crisis that undergirds many of the apocalyptic writings, many of the books. I mean, it could be a crisis of persecution. Um, it could be culture shock, injustice, and even the inevitable death. And it is this setting that the apocalyptic messages speak into and address. So how does a message that is packed with strange imagery and destruction speak to a people in crisis? Uh, A guy named Brent Sandy, who teaches up at Wheaton College, uh, he wrote a wonderful book called um, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, Rethinking the Language of Biblical Prophecy and Apocalyptic, where he does, I think, one of the best jobs breaking down biblical prophecy. And he has a chapter on apocalyptic literature, and he lists six of its functions that are so helpful. The first thing is that it issues a call to worship. It portrays God in such in such a way that it leaves both the character and the stories along with the readers in complete awe of the greatness of God. Um, he is uh, he is the creator. He is sovereign over the whole universe. And in the midst of a crisis, when um, you'd be the most tempted to cower down and shrink back, these messages have this powerful reminder to worship God in the midst of the hardships of life. The second thing it does is it comforts, um, that, that it gives comfort that God is in control. These writings, um, they do provide a picture of God's future world, and it's almost always a picture as a renewed hope of a time where evil um, triumphs no longer, uh, as it is completed, completely destroyed, and in its place, a new age Daniel 8 speaks of the wicked empire that unleashes ruthless carnage on God's people. It is said to be a dis- um, it is said to be destroyed, but not by human hands, implying that it is going to be God who brings it to its end. And then at the last chapter of the book of Daniel, you get this picture of a future resurrection, all of which is a reminder that God is indeed in control. The third um, thing is it provides insight into cosmic issues. While uh, one could open up the newspaper and find a natural explanation for the events on earth, 
Apocalyptic scriptures reveal a cosmic battle between good and evil. Um, it is a reminder that there is a battle taking place between God and Satan and that the crises that they are experiencing is in a part a part of this battle taking place behind the scenes. Fourth, it, it, it gives hope for the persecuted. They often speak of intense periods of persecution that could and would likely result in their death. But it reminds them that endurance to the faith, even to the point of death, will be much better off um, since God is in control of life and history. And it packs away this belief that in the face of death, God is so powerfully, so great that he can, re- he can reverse the pearls of death to bring people back to life. Uh, fifth is it gives assurance of God's victory. We've already touched on this a bit um, in the other uh, in the other ones, but it is a major theme here. But you can get like a picture of God showing up and finally uh, deal with the crooked and evil in our world to punish the wicked and take the reins of creation. And last of all, it is a call to purity. In times of great corruption and compromise, the resounding message is toward faithfulness and not um, uh, caving into the pressures, however intense they may feel. Revelation 2 uh, chapter 10, it put it like it, it puts it like this. Um, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. And you have set up uh, on repeat this message of faithfulness that gets rewarded with victory, whereas compromise and faithlessness is rewarded with judgment. Hang in there and stay your ground because the God who is returning is coming. And when he does, he will come to rescue, save, and reward those who held on to their faith. And so when we read a book like Daniel or Revelation in our Bibles, these are the things that are meant to be stirred up inside of us. It is, a, it is meant to lead us to worship to comfort us that God is in control, to remind us that there are unseen forces at work, to give us hope, um, to give us hope um, to those enduring persecution, assurance of God's victory, and a reminder to stay your course and not to cave into the pressures. And so to read these inspired messages from God is, to, is not to get caught up in the fear over the present trials, or to fear the end of the world, or to go on this prediction over the future, uh, as it's often done today. To do that misses the very heart of why God spoke apocalyptically to us. More than people figuring out the end of time, God is wanting to transform your life in time. And he intends to do that by um, you getting swept up into this, these fantastic stories, these images and symbols of this great unraveling of his apocalypse. God wants to capture not only our outer lives, but our inner life where our imagination is. To read apocalyptic messages rightly is to feel a stirring in your heart 
a longing for something better, a greater sense of encouragement for today, and the realization that in the midst of all of that, you didn't just get puzzled and perplexed, encouraged and challenged by a dead text, but you had an encounter with the living God. Apocalyptic texts don't just pull back the veil for humans to see things from God's dimension. They pull back the veil for humans to encounter the living God. And no life, no literature is ever the same when the living God chooses to disclose his own presence to us. And here's the incredible thing. When we get the apocalyptic message inside of us, it transforms how we think feel, and act in our world, and a life centered on God's victory, presence, and power doesn't just make us better humans, it conveys a vision of life that is to come. God's message unleashed within the church is meant to be, get this, a miniature apocalypse of God's future and final work to be done, a message that is meant to be given to a world that is in desperate need of real hope and real life. And that somehow, some way gets embodied through the church living out the apocalyptic message of the Bible. Man, isn't that cool? Well, I hope this is encouraging to you and it is helpful to you as it has been for me as I've kind of go down, gone down this rabbit trail to try to understand apocalyptic literature. And believe me, There is a whole lot more, and there are stacks and stacks and stacks of books that unpack um, all of this kind of stuff. I hope this conversation was helpful to you. I have had so much fun diving into this topic, and and I feel like there's so much more that can be said and studied on the topic. Uh, If you would like uh, a kind of a refresher on some of my points and the resources that I had mentioned, you can find them in the show notes of our podcast. Next week, you are in for a a very interesting and majorly creepy conversation. I'm not kidding on the the creepy part. In fact, some of you may not even want to listen to the interview. You may just want to skip over it and wait for the, the following week. Next week, my guest is a Bible scholar by the name of Gary Brashears. Gary teaches at, teaches at Western Seminary in Portland, and he has co-authored many books with Pastor Mark Driscoll, and he is currently on the board with a fantastic group called The Bible Project. If you haven't heard of them, you need to go check them out. They are incredible with how they um, illustrate and help us understand what the Bible is and does. But Gary, he is a theological Giant, and I asked him to talk to us about a very big and important conversation, and that is spiritual warfare. Um, it's uh, it's an eye-opening conversation. It is helpful. It is creepy, and it is encouraging. You have to wait till next week to kind of find out why. Uh, one of the ways that you can ensure not to miss an interview like that is to go ahead and subscribe to your podcast wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. Uh, and while you're there, why don't you kind of leave a rating and a review? It helps more people get access to these kind of interviews and topics and conversations. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. <laughs>